Hello and welcome to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. I am your host Larissa and this week we will travel back in time and discuss love and how how it can be really dangerous for some people but also influence an entire nation. Uh, Before we begin, my usual disclaimer to please mind my language, it is for adults only. Uh, If you are listening on Podcast Addict or Apple Podcast, please leave a review saying how great this podcast is or just rate it. Uh, You can also find us on Spotify and of course the website wanderingtheedge.net. But now, let's first talk about some travel options for you. Namely, for those of you who like to wander. Um, so since this episode is about falling in love, I want to talk about parks. Why would I do that? Well, I think parks are lovely, but also I met my husband in a park and therefore that is how we are linking these two topics. God damn it. Um, which parks? Well, specifically the parks in Kiev. But there are awesome parks throughout Ukraine itself too, so don't just think it's just Kyiv that has nice ones. And I'm not going to go through all the parks of Kyiv. There's dozens of them. And some are huge while others are tiny, but I will talk about some of the bigger ones that are more centrally located and interconnected. So let's start with the most central of the parks in relation to Maidana Zelazhnyst, and that is Volodymyrsky Hill, which is located on the steep banks of the Dnipro River and has a monument to St. Volodymyr the Great, the guy who baptized Ukraine. The hill itself was described in the primary chronicles of the Kievan Rus in 1108 as the site of where the original St. Michael's Golden Domed Monastery was located, um, the place that I talked about in the last episode. Uh, It actually currently sits on top of that hill itself, uh, which also featured a citadel. That is gone though. Uh, The park spread around from this monastery and the monument was uh, erected in 1853. This was Kiev's first free of charge public park. It's also the park that the Fernicular is located in to get from Podil region up to St. Michael's Square. You can get really lovely pictures of the Dnipro as the banks are high and you overlook the other side of Kiev from here. There's a nice uh, gazebo located throughout, and you can start your sort of urban nature walk of Kiev there and end up on um, the side of the steep bank near the Motherland Monument, which is like a five kilometer walk. It's one of the parks that I have an actual clear memory of from that 2001 tour of Ukraine, since, you know, alcohol. Uh, But I do recall that we sat in this park watching fireworks uh, and having a heated debate with a Ukrainian guy because we were at that point really just fucking frustrated with the lack of Ukrainian being spoken by people in Ukraine. 
I don't remember how it ended, but it was amicable since I'm alive in here today. Uh, anyways, I'll actually include a map of this little park journey I've constructed on the website so you can see for yourself where I'm taking you. So if you are interested, please go to wanderingtheedge.net for that. Now, if you walk southeast from there, you'll enter the area around the Friendship of Nations Arc, which is a really stupid propaganda attempt by the Soviets to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the establishment of the USSR. It looks like shit, and as the war clearly fucking demonstrates, is bullshit. Uh, it's dumb and I hate it, but if you walk through that area, which is actually in the Hrishatik, uh Park, and you keep on going, you'll get into Marinsky Park, which also features the Museum of Water. It's a smaller museum, but it's fairly interesting uh, and describes how basically water is filtered into drinking water. At least that's all I remember from that. Now, if you walk along, uh, you will eventually get to Park Bridge, which is a bridge that's over a road in a valley and connects the two sides of the park. Before you walk across the bridge, though, you will notice a statue of an elderly couple. Who are they? Well... Let us go back some time to the brutality of the Second World War. Luigi Peduto was an Italian prisoner of war, and Mokrina Jurschuk was a forced laborer. They met in 1943 in an Austrian POW camp and were together for two years. When the war ended, though, the Soviets wouldn't allow Mokrina to go to Italy to be with Luigi. Because, again, they're assholes and they were, of course, separated for 60 years. Uh, but Luigi never forgot that dimpled Ukrainian beauty. And so in 2004, his story and his search was featured in a Ukrainian TV show. And that is how Luigi found his Mokrina. He was still so in love with this woman. And he even kept a strand of her hair in her shirt for 60 years. He was ready to ask her to marry him and move to Ukraine for her, but she refused, saying that they were both over 90 and it was too late. Luigi passed in 2013 and Mokrina in 2015. So they could have had a good 10 years together, which is a reminder that if you find love, jump into that and don't wait. Uh, but their love story has survived in a statue located in Kiev and in Luigi's hometown in Italy. And that is the statue that's featured beside that bridge. So if you walk along the bridge, which is also called the Lover's Bridge, and if you want to lock in your love, you can put a lock on the side of the bridge with your names written on it. Um, then you enter the other side of Marinsky Park right behind the old Dynamo Cave Stadium. The park also features the Verkhovna Rada of Ukraine, so their parliament, and Marinsky Palace. The park itself was founded in 1874 uh, near the entrance to the palace and was basically made for the wife of Alexander II of Russia, Maria Alexandrova, thus the name Maria's Park. 
They, there are absolutely beautiful fountains there. And you'll also see it's a great place for local artists to come out and chill during the spring and summer months. So you might even get a chance to listen to some really great free music on your stroll. There's also an amphitheater that sometimes features free shows too. Also, and I only found this out after researching for this episode, and I didn't even know this while living in the city, and I would walk in that park almost daily. It's a necropolis. Soviet communist leader Andriy Ivanov and Soviet military commander Nikolai Vatutin are actually buried there along with mass graves from the 1917 to 21 Ukrainian War of Independence, along with the White Army's Lieutenant General Denikin's repressions from that same time. Again, fucking Soviets. Marinsky Palace began its construction in 1744 by Russian Empress Elizaveta Petrovna and was designed by Bartolomeo uh, Rastrelli. Uh, He's the guy that designed the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. But the first royal to stay there was actually Catherine the Great in 1787. It was badly destroyed during the Second World War, but restored in the 80s and is currently the former presidential residence. Although when I lived in Kiev, it was undergoing a complete renovation. And I don't even know if the schedule, like what the schedule is to complete it. Uh, But anyways, I loved walking through that park. It was very peaceful, but in a peaceful and like a busy city sort of way. Um, well, that's when there weren't protesters picketing the parliament. Now, you'll either have to walk along the steep part of the bank to get to this next park, or just along Hushevsky Street, until you hit this huge intersection, which features the Salute Hotel. It's this, like, Soviet monstrosity of a round hotel. But across the street from it is the Park of Eternal Glory. Now, if you go down the bank in this area, you'll hit St. Andrew's Monument along with Askolt's Grave Park, which includes a still-functioning Greek Catholic church, which is apparently on the site of Askold's grave. So, um, Askold was one of the original cave sort of kings before the Rudik dynasty took over. But if you go further into the Park of Eternal Glory, you'll hit the Monument of the Unknown Soldier. And this is the location of Remembrance Day's commemorations for the expat community every November 11th. Further on, you will get to the Holdemort Museum and Monument, which is dedicated to the forced man-made famine of the 1930s. And while this is an emotionally charged area due to the nature of Remembrance, The park itself is huge and overlooks the river and is a great place to just walk around and, you know, let your love show. Also, it is in constant use in the winter by children going sledding down the hill. So you keep on walking along um, Lavska Street and you'll hit the last park that we'll discuss today. And I honestly have no idea what it's actually called. I think... I think it's Casa Spivoce Pole, but I don't know. I just call it the park that has a second World War Museum. Now, this is more of a museum complex rather than a park, at least half of it. 
um, because it encompasses the museum and the motherland monument, while the other half is the actual park part. And that is used for musical festivals in the summer. A walk um, through the park itself is absolutely stunning. Even among the hundreds of hipsters attending a music festival in the sweltering heat. Uh, there's a little amphitheater along the side of the bank, so it's like a natural stadium. Again, the views overlooking the Dnipro in all of these parks are well worth the wonder of an urban park. The part of this last park that features the Second World War Monument, uh, museum, sorry, is also now the site of the largest Ukrainian flag in Ukraine, which was unveiled on the eve of Ukraine's Flag Day in 2020. So if you're lost, look for the flag. And now, a tale of love, lost, and terrible betrayal. Once upon a time, there lived a girl named Marusia, and she was madly in love with Hritz. But Hritz betrayed Marusia and married another, Halya. After Marusia saw both of them together at an evening dance, she spun her magic and stole Hritz away. But Marusia couldn't forgive his betrayal, and so she gave him some poison. The poison was some herbs that she dug up early on a Sunday washed on a Monday, boiled on a Tuesday, and poisoned Hritz with early on Wednesday. By the rooster's cry on Thursday, Hritz was dead, and Friday came and Hritz was buried. Early Saturday, Marusia's mother beat her daughter, asking why she killed Hritz. Marusia said it was because Hritz didn't need two loves, but just the one. And this, my friends, is basically a national song of Ukraine. It is a biographical poem by a woman who is considered Ukraine's first female poet, Marusia Churai. But was this woman even real? Well, yes, maybe, but probably yes. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about her, which we will get to into later on. But for now, he's, here's some like basic information that we think is about her. So, Marusia was supposedly born in Poltava, so central Ukraine region, in 1625. Her father was Hordia Churai, uh, an officer of the Poltava Cossack Regiment, and whose house stood on the bank of the Vorskla River, not far from the place where the Poltava Exaltation of the Cross Monastery was founded in 1650. Now, most of this information is coming from Leonid Kaufman's work, The Girl from Legends, Marusia Churai from 17, uh, from 1974. And this is actually still the leading academic work about Ukraine's first and probably the most infamous poetess. Marusia's father was apparently a very brave and honest man. This is a quote from Kaufman. Quote, he passionately loved his homeland and hated its enemies. Once, during a quarrel with a nobleman, unable to withstand the mockery of his people, he snatched a sword from its scarab and cut down the nobleman." After this, 
Churai had to flee and went to the Sich, the Ukrainian um, Cossack stronghold. Join the Hetman, or leader of the unregistered Cossacks, who were considered to be independent actors and were part of the governing Polish Commonwealth, and took part in the uprising against the Polish nobility. During the 1637 uh, Battle of Kumeki, the Cossacks were defeated and Churai fell into the hands of the Polish crown Hetman uh, Mykolaj Potocki. He's, I believe, the same Potocki I talked about in the Robin Hood episodes. He was taken to Warsaw and executed there by beheading. Okay, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time fully explaining the Cossacks in this episode, but I will do it in the next one since they will be important elements in a lot of these episodes. So don't worry, you'll understand it soon enough. Anyway. After her father's death, Marusia was left with only her mother, Horpina. Marusia was a dark-haired beauty, apparently. Um, there's still portraits floating around of her, and she is described as a slender but busty girl with tiny hands and legs, uh, with a friendly expression, a tanned face that blushes easily with brown eyes under thick, dark eyebrows and long eyelashes. She is also black-haired with a braid down to her knees with a small mouth and red poppy-colored lips and an energetic nose. I don't know what that means, and those are Kaufman's words, not mine. So we can sort of rework her history, namely from her songs, because she created a lot of them that became very well-known. So Marussia appears to be in a love triangle. On the one hand, there was Hretz, the guy that she killed. Uh, on the other hand was Ivan, who unfortunately was put in the friend zone. Ivan has been identified as Ivan Iskra, who was the son of Hetman Yakiv Iskra uh, Ostryanin, and was an ardent supporter of Bogdan Khmelnytsky. Ivan was apparently highly valued for his honesty, boundless courage and ardent love for his homeland. He was also apparently dark-haired, moody, and temperamental. Hritz was allegedly Marusia's younger cousin, which in the 1600s wasn't considered and, you know, he, it was a considered an acceptable husband prospect material thing. He was tall, with blonde curls and brown eyes, and was the exact opposite of Iskra. Oh, Marusia. If only you went with the moody emo guy. Anyways, Hritz was apparently Hryhori Bobrenko and was a weak old man who was greatly influenced by his mother. So basically he was a mama's boy. But I guess Marusia's heart really liked that. Anyways, uh, Hritz was also the son of an ensign of the Poltava regiment and was also a Cossack like Ivan. Marusia's songs became famous around 1648, and it was during this time that Ivan and Hritz left Poltava to join forces with Bogdan Khmelnytsky, who was leading the Ukrainian Cossacks in their liberation war against the Polish nobility. So she did not see either of them for some time. And in the meantime, as Marusia was depressed due to this separation from her lover, she wrote another famous song that began with the words Cossacks whistled. 
It was full of pain and fear of the unknown and became more important as the years went by. With Marusia still awaiting to hear news of the Kozak battles, she apparently goes on a pilgrimage to Kiev to find some solace and prayer at the Kiev Bachevsk Lavra, this huge monastery in central Kiev. And if you follow along with my walk through Kiev parks from earlier, you will actually walk by it. Here, she wrote other famous songs, which became the basis of the Ukrainian playwright Ivan Kotlarevsky's 1819 play, Natalka Poltavka, about Natalka, loving a poor Cossack Petro, whose marriage is opposed by her father, but in the end, love triumphs above all. Marusia, though, uh, eventually comes back to Poltava and waits and waits for Hritz to come back. Because you see, she and Hritz made a promise to marry when he returns. She grows more worried, and when she sees Ivan, she can't help but ask about Hritz. And because Ivan is so honest, he tells her the brutal truth. Hritz obeyed his mother and married Halya Vishnyak. Of course, Marusia went a bit cray-cray since, you know, what the fuck. And so she threw herself into the river, but was saved by Ivan, who was passionately in love with her, but she just didn't see it. One day, Marusia's friend, uh, Melasia Barabash, arranged a party and it invited her, but Hitz was also there with his wife. Now, this is Kaufman's description of this uh, fateful meeting. Quote, it was this meeting that led to a decisive break in Marusia's mood. She stirred her passionate nature, jealousy, offended female self-esteem, memories of unhappy love, unfulfilled girls' dreams. All this together boiled in her soul and gave rise to a plan of revenge, end quote. She apparently flirted with Hitz and managed to get him alone and, well, poisoned him. At his funeral... She threw herself at his body and, and confessed to the whole congregation. So, of course, she was arrested and put on trial. She was, again, obviously, found guilty and sentenced to death. On the day of the execution, when people began to gather in the central square at dawn, a cart arrived and two executioners dragged Marusia out onto the platform. The scribe began to read out her sentence... But all of a sudden, a gray horse broke through the crowd, handed the clerk an order from Hetman Bohdan Khmelnytsky himself, and Marusia's life was saved. Why, you might ask? Well, it's because Marusia was a freaking good poet. The pardon has been quote-unquote reconstructed. I use that as did Yevhenia Kononenko in her work. And it got reconstructed as the following, quote, No one loses their mind who sincerely loves. So it is not necessary to punish without reason. And therefore I order to replace the head of the Poltava official, Hordi uh, Churai, cut off by our enemies for the head of his daughter, Marina Churai, in memory of the historic death of the father and for the sake of the wonderful songs which she has made. End quote. So basically, she was saved because of her talents rather than her innocence. I mean, yay! 
was this real? Did this happen? The short answer, no clue. Why? Well, there's no actual academic work on Marusia Churai, just like the majority of other topics of Ukrainian history. The other problem is that the documents that would support her existence were stored at the Poltava Regional Archives, where documents of the Poltava Kozak court were stored. But these were destroyed during the Second World War. I will quote for, from Yevhenia Kononenko about the importance of Marusia from her work from 1999 titled Singing Soul of Ukraine, Marusia Chorai, Lesia Ukrainka, Lina Kostenko. Quote, it is not an established historical fact that in the first half of the 17th century, Marusia lived as a folk poetess and songwriter. But it is established fact that the Ukrainian nation perceived Marusia to be a real person, end quote. And because academics rely on documents rather than emotions and storytelling, academic research into her is literally non-existent. But she was important. Kononenko explains that in the 17th and, 19th and 18th centuries, along with a Kozak portrait in every house and every peasant house, there was also one of Marusia Churai. She was clearly important. And the earliest academic-ish work on her was done by Alexei, and I'm going to screw up these names, so I apologize right now. Alexei, Alexei uh, Shkradevsky, Vadim Mazalevsky, and uh, Oleksandr Shahovskoy, who were all literary writers and created semi-biographical works about Marusia rather than outwardly academic pieces. But as time went on, Marusia's songs became more and more important to the peasant culture of Ukraine. The image of a woman also changed under the influence of national consciousness of the late 19th century. Marusia, at this time, became the author of heroic songs that raised the Ukrainian people's spirit in their fight against oppression. It was at this time that her other song that I mentioned earlier about those whistling Cossacks became popular. Instead of being a song of longing for a Cossack who left to go to war, it now became a powerful symbol of those freedom-fighting Cossacks leaving everything they love to fight for their nation. It was first song, uh, sung on a national stage by Y. Uh, Holovatsky in 1878 and was turned into a fighting marching march, which actually survives until today. Uh, and if you want to hear these various versions, please check out the website where I included links to some YouTube videos. But why was Marusia so popular during a time when women in Western Europe didn't really have that many rights. Well, it's because women in Cossack culture were far more independent than their Western sisters. So, in the Cossack Hetman state, women's legal status was defined by both the Lithuanian statute, uh, which was basically a codification of local customs and laws, and the adoption of the Code of Laws of the Hetman State of 1743. One of the things the code did was 
specifically that there was harsher penalties for killing or insulting a woman than a man, seeing as a woman was physically less able to defend herself. Furthermore, a woman's social status in Ukraine did not depend on her husband. She could own property and was therefore free from the independence of marital status. She could own huge land estates and hold significant importance because of that. Mihailo Litvin wrote in 1550 that, quote, Tartar and, Mar- and Moscow women do not have men's rights, and ours rule over many men, some managing parishes, cities, estates, others making a profit, end quote. Of course, like many other topics to do with gender and women, the history of women during the Cossack state is not well-researched. When women appear in the study of the 17th to 18th centuries, it's characteristic of archetypes of ethnoculture. Because Ukrainian women had more freedom of choice, they were usually the ones to pursue a husband. Thus, Marusia pursuing Hritz wasn't seen as weird, but rather a natural occurrence of a young woman trying to find herself a young, capable man. There is even evidence that a Cossack girl was the one who initiated the marriage proposal. There is an expert from Italian name, sorry, Giuliani Le Vesur de Beauplan's descriptions of this from 1660 in Paul Magoshi's History of Ukraine. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just give you a gist. If the young lady is interested, she will go to the house of her beloved and will give compliments to him like, I recognize in your face something of an easygoing nature. You will know how to love your wife and govern her well. And your virtues make me hope that you will be a good husband. Your fine qualities lead me to beg you very humbly to accept me as your wife. If she is persistent enough and the parents agree, the future husband can then agree to marriage. Basically, if she's stubborn enough, she'll get a husband. Divorce was also in the hands of a woman. There had to be a filing of a so-called protest, which basically defined their settlement. And she even had the right to her own dowry which could be anything from large estates to simple marriage chests, seeing it it was hers. She brought it with her into the marriage. And this was clearly understood and recognized. She could even save a man from death by agreeing to marry him during his death sentencing. Now, in the Zaporizhian siege, which was that Cossack stronghold, women were actually not allowed inside, like at all not even one foot in. All Cossacks in the siege were celibate. This was so strictly enforced because the Cossacks believed that as soon as a woman's foot entered the siege, it meant the end of all Zaporizhian life, which is also randomly true since it was Catherine the Great uh, who destroyed the siege. Even though women weren't allowed in the siege, It didn't mean they weren't important in Cossack culture and even diplomatic and military affairs. Cossack women influenced the spiritual culture of the Cossacks. Without them, the songs, the poets, the art forms wouldn't have been created and survived until today. Uh, 
Now, Anna Chikolenko Keller wrote in 1920 about these Ukrainian upper-class Cossack women. They had a warlike existence defending their frontiers from foreign invasion. This was due to the peculiarities of the unstable life of the Ukrainian lands, which were now, which were near the uh, Tartar borders. Cossack women were even obliged to follow their men into battle, but in his absence, she had to rely on herself. The wife of Semen Pali effectively commanded the Bilatsarkva regiment during his absence. Uh, Feodosia, which was her name, also campaigned against the Moscovite and Polish nobility and managed the regiment's economic affairs. Olena Zavizna became the hero of the Battle of Busha in 1654 when she blew herself up along with the village gunpowder store during a Polish attack. She took the majority of the Polish troops with her. Volinian noblewoman Anna Borzobahata Krasenska managed the Lutsk diocese treasury. She raided neighboring estates and even refused to obey the king's orders. And when a general militia was organized against her, she led her troops and repulsed and defeated their attacks. Those women who stayed behind on the homestead from peasant to upper class had to also make sure she defended her family home and property from attack. This led to a group of women who taught themselves endurance, independence, and the ability to stand up for herself, sometimes with weapon in hand. Of course, that was just a sample of the history of upper-class Cossack women, and I will come back to that topic at a later episode, hopefully. This was the society that Marusia was brought up in. She was allowed to speak openly and pursue her interests passionately. She was such a good artist that she would sometimes answer in verse during discussions. Her abilities with verse was the reason why her songs and poems were so well known, even today. Marusia's works inspired many other artists, including historical novellas, dramas, plays, songs, poems, operas, and other works. One of the most well-known is a novel by Lina Kostenko from from 1979. Sorry, I keep on getting mixed up here. 1979, 100% on that. It was called Marusia Chorai. It was an instant hit. Even though it was a literary and poetic piece, it was also a historical novel. So, um, Kostenko was a protest artist during the 1960s and 70s, basically. Uh, She became influential during a time when Ukrainian resistance was re-engaging itself with Ukrainian society and trying in their own way to oppose the Soviet system. Kostenko wrote this particular work during the Brezhnev era, when Ukrainian history as a discipline was basically non-existent. The only thing historians could write about was the Khmelnytsky era because of the so-called unification of Ukraine and Russia. Kostenko chose Churai because not only was she awesome, 
but because she also came from Khmelnytsky's time, and therefore the Soviet censors could allow it to be published. But ever the rebel, Kostenko placed her own magic on the subject. Kostenko manages to sort of go through the history of Ukraine that was erased due to the colonization of the area. She re-territorizes history, as Marina Romanets explained in her article from 2003, titled His Stories Becoming Histories, Lina Kostenko's Poetic Martyr Drama. She bends the imperial history into vicious cycles of oppression that inadvertently exposes its uh, fictionality and political dogma. I'm using Romanets' article in an article by D.H. Struch from 1990 entitled The How, the What, and the Why of Marusia Churai, a historical novel in verse by Nina Kostenko, to delve deeper into Kostenko. And if you want to look into the topic further, I would suggest reading those two articles to get a better idea of how genius Kostenko's novel was, and still is, or just read it yourself. Kostenko manages to completely ignore Russia in her work, which is amazing for the time, since Soviet censors loved nothing more than linking Ukraine with Russia at any and every opportunity. She does mention Russia once, though, when Khmelnytsky is at his camp near the Battle of Bilatserkva and receives news of Marusia's sentencing. He reminisces about signing a treaty with the Poles, while the narrator then goes on to say that he will again sign, quote, a cursed, uh, end quote, treaty in the years to come. Now, the narrator could be referring to the, some other treaties, but Kostenko was more than likely referring to the stupid Pereslav Treaty signed with Russia, that stupid unification bullshit that the Russians like to talk about. Kostenko also sort of rewrites Marusia's pilgrimage to Kiev, making her travel through a devastated Ukraine, and describes the centuries of bloodshed and suffering the lethal encounters between invaders and the counterviolence of resistance. Kostenko's usage of the traitor is also analyzed Romanets, by Romanets as the following, quote, Horror becomes inescapable in the doubling of the external and internal. In Lubne, Marusia witnesses the signs of past disaster the focal figure of which is Yarema Vishnevetsky, 1612-1651. He has become an icon of monstrosity in Ukrainian history for persecuting the Ukrainian Orthodox population and for suppressing the 1637 Cossack rebellion with unprecedented cruelty, particularly in Volin. Kostenko describes him as a vampire, with cold eyes who paved his way with corpses and marking it with pails, end quote. Kostenko's brilliance also reimagines Marusia's end. There are two historically academic ideas on what happened to her. Either she fell seriously ill while imprisoned with tuberculosis and died after her pardon, or she traveled to Russia, where she died in a monastery. Kostenko's version of her is alive and well, just like Kostenko's hope for Ukrainian history. See, I told you, she's a badass. 
and she's actually still alive, which uh, I will hopefully link to her on the Instagram for this episode. And that, my friends, is why you don't fuck with a Ukrainian woman. She will kill you and then probably create a song about it and it will live in infamy to influence thousands upon thousands of people in various and numerous rebellions, uprisings, and insurgencies. And that is the story of Marusia Chirai and her huge influence on Ukrainian culture and society. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wander Edge Ukraine. Check out, uh, check out our website at wanderingedge.net for source information and other interesting extras. And please, if you can, donate via the PayPal, which is located on the How to Help section on the website. And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcast or a Podcast Addict, please rate and review and leave a comment about anything, just like Petruzia did. Thanks for that awesome review. And if you too want to do that, that would be great. And it would be great to know any weird historical tidbit you have about your culture or peoples. And if you're listening on Spotify or the website, thank you very much. And as always, happy, happy wanderings, my friends. Mm-hmm.